Hello, this is Kim Bartkus with the HR Open Standards Consortium. I'm joined today by several speakers who will talk about their experiences with data privacy laws, both in the United States and in Europe. This includes what data is stored, how it's protected, and how these systems are used globally. Hi, my name is Max Cabral. I'm a data privacy engineer at ZipRecruiter. I lead the team there as we implement various privacy and compliance frameworks and also take a look at particular challenges within our own industry and our own website. Uh, one of the things that we found even before you layer privacy frameworks on is that job seekers and employers have unique privacy concerns. Sometimes you have job seekers that are trying to change jobs or get out of a certain situation and they just don't want to let people know what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish. Maybe they're a little cagey about sharing their job search. So over time, we've seen a lot of interesting challenges in this space. And then with the privacy laws coming up, it's actually been a very interesting dovetailing of these two concerns. A lot of times if somebody wants to hide that they're looking for a job or they're finished searching for a job, the easiest thing for them to do is to just delete their history. So we've actually taken a look at privacy laws of a way of creating functionality and, and really useful features for our job seekers. On the industry as a whole, there's a lot of data, a lot of concentrated data that gets exchanged back and forth. So it's really important to make sure that what we're doing doesn't disclose data in a way that somebody is disinterested in or concerned about. So a large part of what we try to focus on is making sure that it's clear what's happening with someone's data and why. And over time, since I started working at ZipRecruiter, the industry, uh, computer industry as a whole, has moved in that direction since there's really huge interchange exchanges of data that have started to either rub people the wrong way or come under scrutiny. And so I think one of the things that gets me going deep down inside is giving people the tools to actually manage what matters to them, including their privacy, their connections, and really not only having a more useful experience online, but a safer one. Uh, to keep current with all of that, there's been a lot of interesting resources that popped up in the past couple of years. I mean, besides what HR Open Standards is doing, there's the IAP group, there's IAB, and a lot of our implementations have involved various groups either directly spun out of those groups or connected with them. We focus first on GDPR, then move to CCPA, and in between there's been various other implementations and enhancements to our privacy environment that we've focused on. Uh, this year, a couple things that we've been keeping an eye on are cases where metadata through people's you know, uploads get disclosed in ways that we didn't expect. Um, some of this is just how technology's changed over time, and some of it's just the sophistication of what web browsers can do or what our partners and other downstream consumers of that data uh, might have done in a way that you know, we didn't imagine in the first place. Okay, Max, thanks a lot. You're really the, the good candidate for that. Um, my name is Peter Jaynes. I'm living and working in Switzerland. Um, my background is actually uh, 
being an engineer. I studied electrical engineering, did a PhD in computer science in data modeling. So I was involved with data for a very long time, more than 30 years now. And at the beginning, coming from the technical side, building data warehouses, and after an executive MBA, looking more at the topic from a business side, first in the financial sectors for more than 20 years and currently in the, the healthcare sector. And beside that, I, in my military service, I was uh, an IT uh, officer for more than 25 years, so I was in contact with sensitive data there as well. So coming initially from the technical side, I would not claim to be an expert. I would rather say I'm a, I'm a practitioner, but dealing with data, I had to take care of these uh, issues from the beginning. And specifically in the financial sector, there was a, we had to deal with very sensitive financial data. And Swiss banking has a long track record in banking secrecy since the, the 50s. And so when it was still paper-based, it was very obvious how to play it. But when the data became digital, then all of a sudden you had to deal with um, issues like how could data be copied. And about 10 years back, there, there were some affairs when there still were um, CD-ROM drives available. The data was stolen. So the banks had to take care um, how to deal with their data. So the paper-based procedures had to be extended to um, electronic processes, procedures and storage procedures as well. And with that building the, the data warehouses, we had to take care of these effects. So we had to, to think about uh, data privacy early on. Later, I was increasingly involved in regulation projects, tax regulation projects, so the EU savings taxation and the um, FATCA program, the taxation program from the US, where we had to find a trade-off between actually um, acting in the interest of the client um, and on the other hand also complying with the regulatory requirements, which, which was quite an exercise because there was a, a mindset shift in interpretation. So privacy started to take a different role there. So that was more from the financial sector. Currently in, in the healthcare sector in Switzerland, uh, Switzerland is in the process of getting an electronic health record. Unfortunately, it's called electronic patient record, which doesn't really reflect what it should be. And we are in the middle of the deployment phase. Um, I'm currently in a sort of a um, additional project because the, the the health record is just a filing system and we need also some data exchange uh, procedures and platforms. Currently, there's a lot of fax usage, believe it or not. And our objective is to exchange structured data. And as soon as you're getting into structured data, even with non-structured data, you bring up digital uh, information and People have a lot of concerns um, how to use that data in the health sector, of course, because that's, again, very sensitive data. So right now, uh, the main objective is to work towards interoperability, which means standardization of uh, in an organically grown landscape. Data protection is not yet fully formalized. And on top of that, uh, Switzerland has a data protection law from the year uh, 93, so it's pre-internet time. And for about three years now, there's a review on the progress. Um, it's still not finished. And the idea is to, 
to be compatible with the EU, with GDPR, but nevertheless uh, maintaining the autonomy of Switzerland. And so that's a sometimes political debate, unfortunately. So until this is uh, completed, uh, Switzerland has still this very old data protection law, uh, but the new one is being discussed. Okay, thank you, Peter. Uh, hi, I'm Alan Witchford. Uh, I've been involved in data and data privacy, uh, recruitment systems, HR systems for more than 20 years. And despite my obvious, uh, also American accent, like Max, I'm actually based in Europe and I've been here for 30 years. Uh, I would say that my experience has been involved in helping companies figure out what is the data that, that it is private. Uh, we'll go back to the original documentation that came out over 20 years ago. I bought the first one from HMSO here in the UK through to the GDPR and as Max mentioned, you know, the new standards. What I would suggest is that there's a lot of different elements to data privacy. Both Max and Peter will have alluded to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of technology involved moving from paper-based to electronic systems. But one of the things I think we will want to talk about as we go through this, um, this podcast is what about the processes? Um, I'm certainly seeing it. Most of my work has been in the, in the private sector, but over the last um, eight, nine months, I've been working in a, a UK large government organization. We're going through a data privacy impact assessment statement. And the fun thing is that 20% of that has to relate to the technology. And that was the easy one to identify how we protected data, what categories of data we could collect, who is gonna have access to the data. That's pretty straightforward. What has not been straightforward is the processes themselves that have never actually been documented in the business. And I would suggest that for most companies, this will also be true. If you haven't documented your recruitment process, for example, in terms of what can you ask, what do you wanna ask about skills, experience, locations, geographies, um, education, if you haven't documented why you're, you should be asking that question, then the data privacy officer in your business, if there is one, is gonna say back to you, well, it's fine that your system can record that, but uh, why are you asking that anyway? Should you, should you be asking that? And I think uh, Peter would possibly agree with me that we've seen some of that level of questioning of why we should ask for data has really been extended in some of the European legislation over the last couple of years where we've got people, and I think Peter, you and I talked about this before, uh, you can't ask if someone is left-handed, but you do need to know if they're left-handed because how do you set up a cash register? Or you can't ask for a license plate on their car, but you do need to ask that because otherwise, how do you assign them a parking place? And we see a number of those types of instances. So I think that's, that's an interesting element of where data privacy is. It isn't just about the systems, it's about processes. One of the other pieces I think that uh, we may want to touch on at some point uh, is going to be the fact that the EU and US privacy shield has just been struck down um, by the European Court of Justice. This is a major blow to software businesses, uh, many of whom are based in the US, um, and a major blow to most international companies where it's been kind of given with the having the EU US privacy shield that we could actually have our data processed in North America. Um, and this is now really going the other way. And that's gonna really be quite a significant hit. Um, so it might be interesting to see what we think about that as a group. But overall, uh, I think that the key thing is 
it's always changing environment and never, <laughs> you never seem to quite know enough about it. Having some real standards that we will talk about as well, I think can make a huge difference for companies as they try and navigate to this thorny area called uh, data privacy. I can uh, follow up on Alan's point. So the, I would like to emphasize one of his statements. So the, the, the situation is constantly changing. And if you think about it, when the world was mostly paper-based, people did a lot of things without about actually knowing what they were doing. So that's the reason why the processes are not defined, nor the, the legal basis was defined. They were just doing it. And that was not so much of a harm because it was all paper-based. And as the world became more digital, um, the, the paper-based processes were more or less one-to-one -one translated to electronic processes. And the data was the same way captured without thinking about it. It wasn't too bad either, but then all of a sudden, um, while it was available electronically, people started to realize that they could run a lot of other things of this data, which was never intended. And I think that's where the difficulties come in. And I, I think we have a few, not so technical, but more societal question, how we want to deal with this digital data situation. And as Alan quite rightly stated, we need some sort of standards. And these are now starting to show up in the form of GDPR or similar regulations. Yeah, definitely. I think another complexity that's arisen with how cheap storage has gotten is people have built entire systems with the assumption that data shouldn't be deleted for performance reasons or, like you mentioned, finding interesting ways to extract value from that data. So at the beginning, it was just the curiosity of a few researchers, but then um, large companies like Google or um, Facebook started to make use of data in a way which was never intended. And I think that's really what we have to think about as a society. I think it even goes further back. Um, if we look at when the, uh, the ATM cards, you know, cash machine cards started coming out and banks started to think about, oh, I could actually gather some information in terms of where my customer takes their cash out or what they use. And that transitioned very quickly into all of the retail club cards you know, we probably all got a dozen of those in our wallets now where we go in and make a purchase and we get free points because that's going to do something for us. Well, all it really did, and this was starting well over 20, 25 years ago, that all that did was give the retail companies great insight into customer behaviors so they could turn around to their, um, their suppliers and go, look, I can sell an awful lot of this product in that location, so you should give me a deal on it. Or I can now see that maybe if I put that product on the top shelf instead of the lower shelf, I'll sell more of it. And I can go back to my customer and start sending them offers saying, hey, come on back and buy three for two. So this data that we just willingly as a population just gave to the retail companies in one sense turns around and bites us in the rear end now, doesn't it? Because how do we claw that stuff back? I still want to get my points. I still want to get money off from my supermarket. But, but I don't want them to use the information. <laughs> um, so I think there's sort of a catch-22 from a consumer's aspect of what we do with data. And, and that goes through the business as well. If I'm a candidate, I want you to use my data to actually send me jobs that are relevant to where I am and what I do. But at the same time, there's this other part of me going, but why should that company have all my personal information? Shouldn't they just delete it when I'm done looking for that job? And I think it's, 
it's some of those types of issues that as, as regulators and as standards bodies that we will struggle with because there's no clear cut message from the population in terms of what as an individual do I want to use my data for? Who do I want to use it? And how long do I want them to use it for? That, that's exactly the point. I, I, I sort of have to claw it back, but actually they can have my data under certain circumstances as long as they're telling me what they're doing with it and to whom they're passing it on and, and maybe giving me some benefits from that, they can have it. But I think it just sort of evolved um, that they, the company started making use of it without properly telling the data owner um, and reimbursing him for the value of his data. And there's actually another thing. At the very beginning, everybody started uh, in a very fragmented way. So there were lots of silos with data in there. Um, and the use was sort of limited, although it was available in, in digital form. So I remember these um, bonus cards in, in our country, Migros, for example, was called Cumulus cards. And uh, I had colleagues there running these data analysis. They did not even have the, the computing capacity to make use of this data. So today I'm getting offers every day. So we have much more computing capacity. When the, the larger companies like Google or Amazon started to make real use in, in a wide scale with this data, then the game started to, to change. And for a very long time, there was the conception that the, the owner of the servers, actually the, the, the organization which was running the servers would own the data of the clients, which was a misconception for a very long time. And now people start to realize the data is actually belonging to the individual, so the data subject, um, as it's called in GDPR. And I think this transition is just about to happen. Most people don't really think about it. Once it's fully understood and once that the rules around these rights are understood and established, I think we will get a better understanding of data privacy. Yeah, I think when it comes to whether or not somebody's getting, you know, value from that processing is a little bit of a, a cultural, I don't want to say issue um, in the sense of there's an active like problem there that needs to be resolved, but people have different tolerances for what's done with their data. I like to joke with my friends that I have a well-adjusted tinfoil hat and there's certain types of data sharing that I'm more than happy to do. I think it's more the unintentional downstream that I'm not okay with, where I've got a LinkedIn, I've got small social media presence, and I'm happy with that. What bothers me more is when I get an email from some company I've never heard of that's aggregated all of my data and has been selling it, and I only find out because a law was passed that requires them to disclose it. And, you know, that's something that bothers me. And when my coworkers got these same emails or friends get these same emails, some of them just send that email to spam and never think about it again. So there's no real way to express what you want done with your data right now. And perhaps in a sort of forward looking way, the CCPA, you know, final regulations have paragraphs about having signals that you can set on your computer that signal your intent to limit sharing or selling of data. 
but I don't think anybody really knows how to solve for that at this point in a way that would scale or be meaningful. You know, some people who maybe just love buying things off wish that they find in their Instagram feed might be annoyed by all these people asking them for their preferences. And, you know, that seems to be a contingent of uh, complaints on the internet is why is everyone asking me to consent to accepting cookies? Why do I care about my ad settings? Like just leave me alone. I'm just here to see some photos and buy more things from wish. I think you're right about that, Max. By the way, I like the words that you said. You have, you have, it's about people's tolerances to a certain level of data usage or collection. And I think it's also tolerance per device. Because I don't think many people really think too much about what's going on with their mobile phone or their cell phone. Huge amounts of data being shared, location data. Most people haven't figured out that they should turn that off you know, on their phone because they've turned it on so I can, my maps will work instead of just turning it on just for my maps app. So there's a tolerance, which seems to think if it's in my phone, I'm good with it all. And I personally, I don't understand how many people actually do banking from their phone. <laughs> you know, to me, that seems one of those, why would you share your personal financial information from a device that is inherently insecure? But that may just be me. Uh, whereas I feel much more secure doing it on my laptop, which again, may not necessarily be any more secure, depending where I am. Uh, and I think this tolerance for data though, is that individual not necessarily getting the choice of making that tolerance. You're right. How many different times have, ever, have you just clicked on, oh, cookies, geez, I got to click yes, because I got to get to the page I'm going to. In the project we're in now, they said, well, it's fine that you're identifying cookies, but you now have to nail down every single cookie that we're collecting and put that in the data privacy statement that our candidates have to accept before they can move on to the application. And no amount of protesting that the, no candidate's ever going to read that list actually is gaining any traction with the data privacy officer. They're just saying, I don't care. We have to list every single cookie. And that means the candidate has the opportunity to re read how many cookies we're collecting and decide not to progress if they don't want to. Now, in my mind as a consultant, as a technologist and, and having built systems, I look at that and go, man, you just made my job impossible. As a recruiter, you've made my job impossible because if the candidate reads all of that list of cookies and goes, geez, I don't know why you're collecting that piece of information from me. I'm not going to apply to the job. So to me, there's this also this, not only is it our tolerance as, as consumers or candidates or you know users, but also the tolerance of regulators and legislators to understand real life versus perhaps creating a regulation in a bubble in what what would be the perfect world? And I refer back to Peter's challenge about left-handedness and, and, and license plates in Holland. You know, we have to be able to continue on doing life. But I think this is a challenge. It is, there is some cultural aspects to it, Max, but it's a, it's a challenge in terms of types of business, geography. You know, someone in the northeast of England might have a higher tolerance than someone in the southwest of England. How do I cater for that? Much less crossing borders. That's actually a good point. So I think the, the tolerance is a very important part, but it very much depends on the culture. So if you look um, at Estonia, they are very digital, very open. So they have some sort of, I don't know if it's their social security number, but they have one number to do every sort of business. So for healthcare, um, banking, you name it. 
if I look at US from my distant view, US is quite pragmatic. As long as it's technically doable and nobody complains, let's just do it. Switzerland is, people are very sensitive. So what's possible in Estonia would never work in, in Switzerland. So Switzerland has a social security number that the use is extremely restricted. There are currently debates going on if it can be used for certain other things. But in reality, it, um, you end up with a lot of silos. So you, if you don't allow, uh, let's say, a common identifier, so we are in the digital identity world here, then you end up with a lot of silos, you end up with a lot of re-entering information, which would in principle be available. So I'm, in general, I don't like to re-enter information, but I particularly don't like it if I have to do it on my mobile with the funny touch keyboard. Certain information, I would like to, to call it up and to send it. But for others, um, I would like to be a little bit more uh, restrictive. And the, the situation which you just described with, with the cookie question, so I hate it as well, by the way, I think it comes from the situation that, that the world is now realizing that you have to do something, there are certain regulations, but they're growing bottom up and they're not coordinating. So I personally would prefer that I specify my tolerance or preference, uh, whatever you call it, in one place and I make it available. And instead of asking me a cookie questions for every website which I visit, then they can read my profile, they can read from there what uh, my preferences are. And I don't have to reconfirm it all the time. By the way, I think that the world is moving in that direction anyway. I'm hearing that cookies are about to disappear. So that brings me again to the point about the processes. And, and it goes one step further. It's about social values. What, what is our value of privacy? The society has to think what the values are. And once that's defined, then we can define the processes around it. And after that, we can define uh, the, technology, the technology solution. That would be the ideal world, ivory tower world. The reality is right the other way around. So it comes bottom up. So you have technical solutions like the cookie question, and then it's, it's getting cumbersome. And then you have to think about more integrated ways. And if you read the GDPR regulations, um, you realize that we are pretty much there. So a lot of things which should be respected are written down there. So to me, it's a really good regulation. It's quite easy to read. While I was reading it, it occurred to me, if we would have to implement that right now, today, that would be quite difficult. So I know from my mandates um, in the financial sector and from other places that there's a lot of legacy systems. And in, in the worst case, the, the, the persons who built these systems are either retired or fired. The systems are not documented, so it's almost impossible to make changes on the system. So even if you have the values and the processes and the regulations, implementing them is, is, a, is a long way. So one of the challenges that we face is we've got the U.S.-oriented, very U.S.-oriented product, and we're always, you know, thinking primarily of that market. And we have, you know, some... Uh, concerns as far as like GDPR and other, you know, say like there's the Switzerland specific uh, privacy laws. There's a lot of things that we, you know, have to think about and think about how these laws interact with each other. On our end, that ends up being many, many hours of thinking 
about the best approach before we act. How are you guys handling where laws might interact in ways that are not compatible with one another or add additional complexity than just one law on its own would create? I think it is an interesting challenge, Max. And, and like Peter, believe it or not, I have read the GDPR regulations. It's a riveting read, as you can imagine. <laughs> it at least has a nice website. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really enjoyable. But I think if we look at it from a, on a European perspective, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, one of our biggest challenges is, you know, to start out with, we had Safe Harbor. And I did a project 10 years ago, and that was fine. Safe Harbor meant we could have our data hosted by our vendor in the U.S., and we were good. But then that got challenged. And, and Max Schramm has, has come up again, Max Schramm's, and has now challenged the Privacy Shield and has won again. So that's been struck, being struck down. And without necessarily, it's going to affect the one analysis I read, it's going to affect over 5,000 companies. You know, it's a huge amount of information and trade goes back and forth between North America and Europe. But, you know, we looked at that in one of my previous clients. And so we said we didn't think even we, were, we weren't even that confident about Privacy Shield. Also, because we were dealing with a lot of Asian countries and a lot of countries that weren't part of the EU, EUS system. And we started using these standard contracts, uh, standard contractual clauses. And that's what we and our legal team put together in terms of each one of our operations and offices. We were in 40 something countries actually had to make sure they had standard contractual clauses that enabled them to share data across the borders. And this was a manufacturing business. So it wasn't just our employees data, but it was also customer data, for example, and supplier data. And we felt pretty confident about that. <laughs> when I read through the analysis of what the impact of what Max has done in this recent uh, court case is that SECs are also gonna be under challenge. So there's a part of me that says, well, what standard is there that's going to enable us to actually conduct business on an international level? We know the real challenge is nobody trusts data hosted in the U.S. Um, no matter what document we put in place, there is a huge fear that U.S. government will just override any regulation if it wants to look at somebody's data. And that kind of underpins so many of these protests and these court cases. So, our, our challenge is, does that mean, Max, that you move all of your data processing to Ireland, for example, and just stop processing data in North America? Well, that would be a huge undertaking and change in your business model, uh, as it would for any of the technology vendors. And I'm not sure where uh, HR Open Standards, is there something we can do as a body that can come up with a standard that may be acceptable <laughs> everywhere but North America? I don't know. It feels to me there's, a, there's another challenge there. Maybe two perspectives. One from the financial sector. So the, based on the tradition of the Swiss banking secrecy, which is not so strong anymore, but that the mindset is still there. And specifically in these tax initi initiatives, there was always a trade-off between acting in the interest of the client and complying with these rapidly changing regulations. It, it was not just GDPR, so on the FATCA, it was, a, was about 550 pages of US legalese with new versions every six months. It, it was even difficult to, to find an interpretation of it. And then in the second stage, um, analyzing what it means for the banking processes and then finding ways in implementing that in, in a world of, of legacy systems. 
So <laughs> I think the, the regulation was only part of the problem uh, and, and the data privacy. So we had a lot of other challenges there. And, and specifically these new regulations, um, it takes a while. Uh, that was particularly visible with FATCA. It takes uh, uh, at least six to 12 months uh, for the market to swing in on, on agreed interpretation how the law should be used. If it's too restrictive, you can't do business anymore and it's almost impossible to implement it in the systems. If it's too open, then you're not compliant. And that's one of the reasons why the compliance departments of the financial sectors grew considerably over the last few years. A perspective for me as an engineer all these systems are hard-coded, or most of them are hard-coded. So this r increasing pace of changing regulations makes it increasingly hard to, to change all these systems. So my dream would be a situation or a system environment where certain things could be generated instead of handwritten. You just can't catch up anymore. So that's the whole chain of how to deal with the regulation and up to the point where you have to implement it in the system. It's actually quite different in, in the healthcare sector because um, it's, it's government driven and for everything what uh, has to happen in the electronic health record in Switzerland you need a, a legal basis and, and we are having conversations with uh, these persons so there's 0.00 pragmatic approach. If there's no legal basis they just don't do it. The, the law setting process, as you can imagine, is pretty slow. Uh, they, they do certain prototypes, but you can only use it with real data once there's a, a legal basis. You need to have the necessary law and then you have the, um, the additional um, interpretations. It's Verordnung in German, and then yeah, you're allowed to work on it. So it's much more strict to the letter of, the, of any sort of regulation, in this case uh, for the electronic health record. Well, I think the electronic health record is an interesting approach. And you've mentioned this in the past when we talked. Whereas in the UK, the NHS has been trying to get some sort of consolidation of the ability to have the information flow from my GP or local surgery through to my hospital when I go in for a treatment or even between departments within the hospital. Uh, as a case in point, I'm going through some minor procedures at the moment. I went in for my pre-assessment and the woman literally takes out a 10-page document in a pen and starts filling out this document by hand. And I said to her, well, you know, I had a different procedure six weeks ago. Can't you just pull that one up and let's start with that? She went, I would love to, but I have no access to your records because that was a different procedure. So I have to start over from scratch. And when you think about the amount of effort, time wasted, <laughs> it's just phenomenal. I would have been very happy as a patient for her to be able to log in, pull up my record and find out everything that had been going on, and let's just fill in any new blanks. So it's, again, there's, there's this sort of, seems to be kind of the disconnect between what the corporate body, the NHS itself, can actually figure out how to do um, versus what me as the patient might want. In fact, it's only because of COVID that my, uh, my consultant is, was finally able to access his system via his iPhone and by his computer at home. Up until February, March of this year, he was unable to do that. And it wasn't necessarily a question about the sanctity of the data. It was a technical issue. And I think that is one of our, our thoughts to think about is, 
if you've got a t eight, 10, 12 year old system and you've got all these new regulations coming at you, your systems just cannot cope with this level of new, new regulation. And if you're a large company, you might be able to figure out a way around that. But if you're an SME, you have no hope to be able to update your eight-year-old HR system, which has been working perfectly fine for your 50 employees, just to meet new regulations. There's a big cost involved there. So I wonder if there's any, well, we're pretty sure there isn't any thought involved in regulators when they're building these new regulations of what the actual commercial impact is on business. I know with California's process, they did take a lot of time to request uh, comments from, from companies or various people in the industry, both the legal side and the technology side. I wasn't in any of those, and I certainly wasn't in the room where they were drafting the laws, so I can't speak to whether or not that was effective, but I think that was at least part of their thought process. I mean, for, for people who are unaware of the specifics of California's uh, road to data privacy law, there was a ballot initiative that was said to be stricter than what was ultimately passed. And what was passed was sort of the, hey, we relent, we've come up with a law that we think is a little more workable, uh, we'll figure out the rest later. And we've definitely been living in a world where they've been figuring out things as they go. Uh, COVID certainly didn't help things since the timing for getting those final regulations was about the same same series of, or rather the same time period as COVID picking up, especially in California. So it was a little touch and go as to whether or not we would get them or if they would pull in everyone's feedback in time. So it gave me at least a better sense that they were listening um, since you could see people at least having something substantive to gripe about rather than wailing at the mere existence of the law. So I think that's at least a step forward. You know, there's going to be somebody who's upset with any decision created within the legal system or government bodies. But I think if that sort of consultative process is done and people feel heard, even if they're maybe not happy with the outcome, they won't feel shut out or things imposed upon them with, you know, no attention paid to them. That's actually a very good finding. So listening to people is one thing and start working on solutions is the other thing because certain things you only can find out if, if, you, start, if you have a practical use of it. And I personally think it's an iterative process. So don't over-design it. Make a reasonable first step. Look how it works and think about um, revisiting it. That's... That's actually part of my PhD thesis about evolutionary approaches. So I think that's something what we should consider for to make privacy happen in practical systems, not just in uh, legal texts. So we're all been active in, in various ways with, with HMR, XML as well as HR Open Standards as it is now. Um, what can we be doing as a standards body to promote our, our customers and users of our standards to actually make sure that they are building in that kind of approach that you're discussing, Peter, that they can build it into their, both their process, but into their systems. You know, we can have standards that actually 
uh, enable the transfer of data between various different systems. Um, and we can probably, I guess, put some safeguards in to make sure that, that, that there's a reason for mapping those fields and having that data transfer. But is there something that we can do in our use cases or something along those lines that would actually talk about best practices on the use of data? Is that a place as a standards body we would want to get into? Alan, that's a really good point. HR open data privacy standards are built into the top level of every one of our nouns. The standards lay out who has access to them and what type of access and how long that data can be stored. It would really be helpful if we could come up with more use cases around data privacy. And as you mentioned, the methods to show how we would use them in our actual work life. Yeah, examples and sample implementations are really important. The IAB has a spec for California, you know, do not sell implementations for ad tech. And the biggest problem that I think everyone who's implemented this has faced is there's a spec, some stubs of what your interface should look like, but it's not final. It's not defined to the point where you are able to know with certainty that your implementation is correct. And in the meetings for essentially the genesis of that, there were concerns from the ad industry around performance. There were concerns from the people who either place ads through those services or display ads that you know their WordPress site or their Wix site wouldn't be able to integrate properly. And I think what ended up happening as a result is we got this sort of watered down sample that was to please everyone, but it wasn't clear if it would work in practice. There wasn't a test suite. There wasn't a canonical example you could build your own against if you, know, you did have a performance concern or you found a better way of doing things. You know, there's attempts at creating what would be a reference spec or a reference implementation. But if you have three or four people promoting the one true way of doing something, it's not as impactful as having some leader in the industry that's you know, trustworthy, actually providing really solid guidance. When I was running the resume search engine at ZipRecruiter, having the HRXML spec available, and also like the what and the why, not just here's an XML body, uh, that was really useful. I could go ahead and, and learn from the people who had put that together by reading the documentation and seeing the trade-offs and why a field might have multiple values, why something might be a list. Because, uh, you know, in a lot of these areas, there's some nuance that's going to apply to one, in, you know, that case, uh, culture of maintaining job information. But in our most, you know, topical case here, you know, there's going to be a California reason for doing something. There's going to be uh, a GDPR reason for doing something. Uh, you know, New Mexico might come up with a law and all of a sudden there's a new nuance. And those aren't just captured, you know, in an easy way anywhere that I'm aware of. I would like to reemphasize the point about the, the use cases. So I think most people can only imagine um, how it looks if they can sort of touch, see and touch it. And um, writing a spec or writing a law is, uh, is one thing. And, and some people who are more conceptual can maybe read or understand it. But I think coming up with practical use cases, preferably ones um, which are derived from the market, 
um, really can bring the, the, the project forward, can capture practical experiences. Thank you to our speakers, Alan, Max, and Peter. This has been a really great podcast with you guys sharing your views on data privacy and the issues that you found in the industry as you've been moving forward. It doesn't matter what you think of data privacy, it's not something that's going away. It's constantly changing and something we all need to be aware of. At HR Open Standards, we can help the industry by building more use cases. If this is something you'd be interested in, just, just let us know. If you have any other questions regarding the standards, implementation, or data privacy, I invite you to check out the resources on our website and follow us on social media at HR Open Standards. Thank you.